0: I'm going to say that most people experience stress as negative emotion, yeah. right? Uh, and either the negative emotion makes them feel stressed, or they're feeling st- negative emotions as a result of stress. It doesn't matter. Let's just kind of say that people are aware of stress when they're feeling negative emotion in their life. And there's positive kinds of stress too. We won't get into all that, but but let's just go there for now. Um, in my book, I call that a point of contrast, right? So a point of contrast is basically an unwanted experience in your life, something that you know things are not going right, and it's stressing you out. It's causing you to feel negative emotions. You're unhappy, Uh, you're afraid, angry, whatever it is. Um, You've created a point of contrast, and the reason I call it a point of contrast is because it's contrasted with the experience that you want to have. So these points of contrast are really instructional. Uh, uh, If you if you think that every experience of life is like uh, the food at some buffet. You've never tried any of the foods before, you've got to try the ones you don't like, and you've got to try the ones you do like, and so on. And and when you figure out the ones you do like, you can get more of those. So these points of contrast help us home in on the life we would really like to have. Uh, So rather than think about stress as something negative or bad, or think about these unwanted experiences as inherently evil, uh, they're not. It's just, it's provided you with a point of contrast. You can now clearly say, I don't want that in my life and it gets you even closer to what you do want in your life. Mm -hmm. Uh, Hi, my name is Stuart Alsop, and this is my podcast, Crazy Wisdom, where I
1: interview creative people about how they work with and manage the stress that is inherent in creative work. I look for what's called craft wisdom, wisdom that only people who are creating on a daily basis have access to. Oftentimes, these people don't really have the time to write about their insights, so I dig deeply into their worldviews to pull out What's important for the rest of us to understand how we can live more of a creative life? Today I interviewed Ryan Marchman of the Adjustatorium in Boulder, Colorado. I'm a body worker myself, so to interview another uh, chiropractor who is also a body worker was a real treat for me. Uh, oftentimes, body workers know a lot about stress because people come to them every day for stress, uh, to relieve stress. I was not expecting Ryan to have such deep insights that applied so deeply to my own life as they probably do to other people as well. He says a lot about things like avoiding or unwinding beliefs about poverty consciousness, that type of thinking that gets us stuck in loops and gets us stuck in poverty. Uh, There's a lot of important things to say about what stress means, why it's important in our lives, why it's something that we shouldn't just kind of avoid in blanket but we should actually engage with and understand why are we experiencing stress? What is the, what is the insight that this stress has for us? Uh, he's also got a book out, um, The Principles of Success. I'll link to it in, the, in anything I, I put on social media. If you like this episode, please find us on uh, iTunes at Crazy Wisdom uh, and hope you have a great day, thanks
0: welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. Can you introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Dr. Ryan Marchman. I'm at the Adjustatorium in Boulder, Colorado. I teach, uh, I teach chiropractic adjusting technique. I teach success principles to healers and body workers. And what are success principles? Oh, basically what I teach about is success consciousness. Okay. Right. So there, are, um, a big problem I see in the health and healing professions is that healers tend to be helpers and they, they feel as if they should give their services away for free. So a lot of what I teach people to do is uh, build the kind of consciousness that allows them to be successful and abundant while still providing helpful service for people. Hmm.
1: And what is kind of the major technique that you find yourself sharing, or if there is a technique, or is
0: it more of a framework or mindset? Yeah, it's a framework and a mindset, and it's uh, a lot of it has to do with unwinding the beliefs that surround poverty consciousness and then instilling the, the kind of thoughts and underlying psychological structure that allow for success. Um, the consciousness of abundance is basically said there is more than enough to go around. You know, what you create, you bring into the world. It's not, it's not that you're fighting over resources with someone else. And, you know, for you to be abundant, you have to take from someone else. That's a falsehood that, that I try to dispel. Instead, it's about everything you create, you're bringing more abundance into the world so we can all be more abundant. Uh, and I think when people make that fundamental shift, they can start to really change the way they do business.
1: Hmm. And why do you find that most healers or
0: uh, people in this profession end up with a poverty mindset? Um, well, there are a lot of reasons why. Uh, some of it is cultural. You know, we're taught from a young age that money is the root of all evil, for example. Or we're, we're taught that there's some kind of holiness in poverty. Um, you know, that that uh, there, we're taught that people who try to get money are greedy and so on. So there's a, there's a lot of shadow around the attainment of wealth, um, and and the other reason is uh, self worth. Mm. So very often healers are people who've been wounded before, mm. right? Mm. And many of those wounds occur in our self worth also. You know, so people often feel like uh, they have to repent, and they repent by giving their services away. And like I'm a healer, I should be helping people. You know, I shouldn't be asking for anything in return. And, um, <clears throat> so those are things that have to shift. They really have to shift if you're going to be a successful healer because in order to be a successful healer, you need to see a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And in order to see a lot of people, you need to have a successful business because if you can't pay your own rent, you know, how are you supposed to, to spend your time helping others?
1: One of the biggest things for me with that kind of poverty mindset and not asking money for it is the awkwardness of the conversation itself or sure. the perceived awkwardness of it. What, uh-huh. what do you think about that? Or do you have any tips for me? <laughs> for you? Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
0: yeah. Learning to ask for money is a, is a, is an important step and it's, uh, it's a symptom, uh-huh. right? So it's not like I can give you a strategy that says, this will make you better at asking for money. Whenever you kind of clear up the underlying belief, then, then it's no longer uncomfortable. Um, so it's more about removing limiting beliefs as opposed limiting to... Limiting beliefs. Yeah. That's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and it's not about learning how to be a salesman or whatever. Uh, but let's reframe sales a little bit. If you say you're going into uh, Sears or Best Buy or someplace and you really wanted to buy a refrigerator. For your new home, but there was no salesman around to sell you one. You'd be really frustrated, uh-huh. right? You want somebody to sell you the thing that you want, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and you want to give them money in exchange for it. You know, people. Uh, that, that's you know, whenever you're looking for a service or a product that you need or want, you're happy to be in exchange for it. And uh, healers need to learn that their clients are happy to be in exchange for their service. Um, and once you kind of clear out that and get that backwards thinking turned around, then it just becomes a natural part of the conversation. You know, at the end of the visit, you say, this is how much it costs, and uh, I'll swipe your card here, or you can write me a check or whatever, and, and for the most part, people are happy to do it. Uh-huh. You know, it's just a, it's a natural part of the conversation rather than, strategizing a way to manipulate people into giving you money, which is a lot of what sales and marketing is. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the stuff we react negatively, negatively to. Too, yeah. right? mm-hmm. So there, are, in, in my book I write about two planes of working in business. One is the plane of competition and one is the plane of creation. I got these ideas, ideas from a book from 1910 called The Science of Getting Rich huh. by Wallace Waddles, but uh, he's really brilliant because he elucidates these two planes and um, The plane of competition is a plane of scarcity, right? That's the one that says that we're in competition with everybody else in the world for a limited number of resources in the world. Um, And it really doesn't hold up to scrutiny. If you really look at what that plane says, you know, there's only a certain amount of stuff and once everybody has it, that's all that there is. Um, Look back a thousand years and uh, think about the amount of wealth and resources that existed in the world a thousand years ago just sitting here in my office looking around at the technology and the riches and the uh, you know, beautiful amazing things that we have access to, right now you and I sitting in this room are wealthier than the King of England was in the year 1000, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So that obviously means that there's more wealth in the world than there was then. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, So, so the, the plane of competition doesn't bear up to scrutiny. There's not a limited number of resources. We can con- continually bring more and more into the world. We can invent things that didn't exist before. Uh, so that brings us to the plane of creation. When we do business on the plane of creation, where every act of business creates more abundance for everyone involved. Um, but then the, whenever we're no longer on the plane of competition, we don't have to engage in those strategies that are intended to manipulate people into giving their money in a, in a way. that's like, I'm taking away from you, right? Whenever we help people create the life that they want, for example, by furnishing their, their kitchen with a new refrigerator, that's something that they want. Um, We help people create the life that they want. They're really happy to be in reciprocation for it. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of those sales techniques and stuff feel bad to us because they're based on the plane of competition, Mm -hmm. which those of us who are a little, uh, what I call outsiders, you know, we have a different way of thinking about things. It never feels good to us because on some level we understand that it's not true, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, So in basically relating with people the way you want to be related to, uh, you can do sell, selling or whatever you're, you know, selling whatever your product or service is. You can provide it to them in a way that's really low, uh, low pressure, very honest and honoring to that person and to your own worth, um, and, and and there's never really any problem. Uh, here in my office, I have quite a high fee compared to many other chiropractors, and I don't really have people complaining about prices, mm. uh, and you know, that's because the, the service I deliver is commensurate with the price that I ask. And, and people see that and they're happy to pay for it. And once in a while I have somebody who just can't afford it and I tell them, you know, that's fine. Uh, whenever your circumstances change, I'm here for you. Mm-hmm. Right? And, mm-hmm. and, uh, however, when I was, in the past when I was kind of suffering from this poverty consciousness mindset, I had a lower price and I had more people complaining about the price mm-hmm. because that's what I was attracting <laughs> right yeah. I was attra- I uh, was on the attra- I was on the wavelength of saying I'm not sure if this is worth it for people so I was attracting people who said I'm not sure if this is worth it right mm-hmm. so so it's a, to me it's 99% psycho- psychology mm. and 1% being the best at what you do mm. right
1: and so can you talk more about your personal journey of like d- how much Did you receive this knowledge from someone else, or was
0: it something you discovered in in your kind of way of life? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, So it's a little bit of both. I've done a lot of study over the years, um, kind of unwinding my poverty consciousness uh, web that I developed. Uh, And it started, see if I can remember, um, seven or eight years ago, I'd say. I really kind of first became aware uh, that I was thinking in that way and over the years worked on a little bit more and a little bit more until um, this is the fourth business I've started and I and I started this business two years ago and um, and for a year before starting this business two years before starting this business I studied all of the different all the different kind of economic and mechanistic factors that go into the business mm-hmm. I'm in and I studied uh, all the different strategies for getting new clients into this business and all the different this is how you open and this is how you market and, so, and, and I was I got to the point where I knew everything there was to know about starting this kind of business and then uh, you know I hired coaches to help me and coaches they all said you're doing everything great you're doing the right thing good job and so on and uh, and even though I knew all this stuff even though I'd studied all this stuff uh, I hadn't internalized it to the point where uh, it made a real shift in my psychology. So a year into this business, I was almost out of business, mm. right Even though I was doing everything right, mm. and you know, I, I was implementing all the strategies, you know, uh, it wasn't working for me because I was operating on the plane of competition, right The strategies I was putting into place were not coming out as an expression of me. They were basically my intellect and my ego, thinking, "This is how you run a business, this is how we're told we're supposed to do it and so on. Um, and eventually I gave that up and I really just uh, dove into the principles that I teach now and, and I wrote in my book and, and so on which uh, took a lot, took a, it was like a leap of faith, mm-hmm. took a lot of faith and I had to get to the point where my ego and my intellect had no more strategies left to try mm-hmm. and I could just give up mm-hmm. and once I surrendered and gave up um, then mm-hmm. within six months of that um, my business had, had tripled you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and uh, <coughs> Hmm. Were the other businesses were they all chiropractic as well? No. Okay. No, I've been mm-hmm. in several industries. Uh, I was a neuromuscular therapist for five years. I was a, I was a nutritional consultant for six years. I taught martial arts for thirteen years. I had two different martial arts schools that I started. And, uh, so I've been in I've been in business in different fields. I grew up in a family business doing cable television. Uh-huh. Um, you know, so I've been in several different businesses over the years, um, and uh, I always did well but not that well uh-huh. right yeah and, and there was a limiting belief I had around money where I could get as much as I needed but I couldn't get more than I needed mm-hmm. right and that was some, one of those processes that I kinda had to unwind a belief that I'd developed even in childhood it was a long time ago and once I unwound that belief I I kinda I went from barely breaking even to making two thousand dollars in profit and then four thousand dollars in profit and so on uh, you know so that's when I really came to understand on a deep level that this is about the psychology. It's not about the mechanics of business. Mm. Although you need the mechanics of business, but that's not what makes you successful. Those are just going through the motions of allowing the, the business to come to you.
1: So what what is the role of stress? Actually, so I've got two different ways we can, we, we can go and I'll leave it up to you. Mm-hmm. So one is kind of what you view stress in this whole process. How did stress help you to figure out what? where you are right now, what role did it play Um, or the other way, uh, which I'm actually losing track of right now.
0: So let's go with stress. (laughs) Sure. Um, Stress has a lot of definitions. So let's define it the way I want to talk about it in this conversation. Um, I'm going to say that most people experience stress as negative emotion. Right. Uh, either the negative emotion makes them feel stressed or they're feeling negative emotions as a result of stress doesn't matter let's just kind of say that people are aware of stress when they're feeling negative emotion in their life and there's positive kinds of stress too we won't get into all that but but let's just go there for now Um, in my book I call that a point of contrast right so a point of contrast is basically an unwanted experience in your life something that you know things are not going right and it's stressing you out it's causing you to feel negative emotions you're unhappy uh, you're afraid, angry, whatever it is. Um, you've created a point of contrast. And the reason I call it a point of contrast is because it's contrasted with the experience that you want to have. So these points of contrast are really instructional. Uh, yeah, uh, if you if you think that every experience of life is like uh, the food at some buffet, you've never tried any of the foods before, you've got to try the ones you don't like, and you've got to try the ones you do like, and so on. And the, when you figure out the ones you do like you can get more of those so these points of contrast help us home in on the life we would really like to have uh, so rather than think about stress as something negative or bad or think about these unwanted experiences as inherently evil uh, they're not it's just it's provided you with a point of contrast you can now clearly say i don't want that in my life and it gets you even closer to what you do want in your life mm-hmm. uh, so i advise people to as soon as they recognize a point of contrast in their life something that's stressing them out something that is uh... Mm -hmm. causing them negative emotions uh, that is a call to uh, discover how you really want to live so you figure out that point of contrast you say I definitely don't want that that brings me closer to what I do want you leave that point of contrast behind never think about it again and you always focus on what is the life that I would really like to have Mm -hmm. you know what's the kind of business I would really like to have um, and then for business owners and, and, and particularly in healers, it can be really difficult each month because you see these bills coming in and so on, and um, you tend to get stuck in a point of contrast. Mm. And you ask people what they want, and they say, "I don't want to be broke anymore." Yeah. And it's like you're you're stuck <laughs> thinking about being broke all the time. Uh-huh. You know,
1: and that creates the the, mm. the, the 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 what you talked about earlier, which is essentially
0: always making just enough or whatever. Right. right? Yeah. yeah. So you, so you keep You keep you get what you think about, right? Mm-hmm. You think about what you, you bring about what you think about. So, you think about being broke all the time, mm-hmm. you're always gonna be broke, mm-hmm. right on the edge of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so it's like, okay, now you know, poverty is not an experience I want. Uh-huh. So, what is the experience you do want? Uh-huh. You know, that's abundance or wealth mm-hmm. or success or you know, however you define that. So then once you know you don't want poverty anymore, always, uh, that's, that's the use of the will. There's only one good way to use the will, mm-hmm. willpower. And it's not to force yourself to do anything or impose your will on other people. The only good use of the will is to discipline the mind. And you discipline the mind to think only thoughts in the direction of where you want to go. Mm. Right. So you see those points of contrast. You experience the stress. It gives you a really good guideline. Don't go there. And then immediately change your focus on where you should go, mm. where you want to go. Mm.
1: Uh, and the question I was going to ask earlier was essentially what is
0: the recommendation
1: or how do you... Uh, help someone see these frameworks negative limiting beliefs and h- allow them to pass through them what is and you said there's not many techniques it's a framework switch but how do you actually teach a framework switch or how do you impart a framework switch sure
0: so i do i do have a couple simple techniques uh-huh. written in my book um <clears throat> there's not a particular technique that works for everyone um i uh, actually have I've tried many different things and many different techniques have made me aware of one or two limiting beliefs. Mm. And then I, I go a little mm-hmm. deeper and some other technique makes me aware of a couple more. Uh, but you you really have to... Uh, the basic technique that I use is is really start thinking about um, success, prosperity, abundance, money, whatever, whatever however you want to frame it. And then write down everything that you think might be taking you away from that spot so a limiting belief might be well I think money is the root of all evil or money is evil or I think that rich people are out of touch or rich people are greedy or Mm -hmm. you know you gotta go through this list of things that you believe about it and you gotta figure out the ones that might be limiting you and you might not know so I have a list in my book that kinda gives people a a starting point so they can see you might think that that belief is virtuous you might not know that it's a limiting belief Mm -hmm. you know um, Mm -hmm. Uh, a lot of people think, for example, that poverty is virtuous because of Gandhi and Mother Teresa and so and on. Jesus. Who, <laughs> well, Jesus wasn't poor. Did uh-huh. you know that? I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, Jesus was a carpenter. He was uh-huh. a professional man uh-huh. And, uh-huh. and a carpenter in in the year two in the, in the well in the year zero zero two thousand years ago. A carpenter would have been a semi wealthy person. Uh-huh. You know. Uh-huh. Um, but didn't
1: he? Well, there wasn't a lot of the teachings, and I'm sure there's a lot of uh, difficulty in discerning what he actually taught. But sure. a lot, weren't a lot of the teachings
0: blessed are the poor uh, or blessed are the meek uh, blessed are the yeah, meek. yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right but meek. to be meek you don't mm. have to be in poverty mm-hmm. right you don't have to be suffering to be meek hmm right? mm. so what is meekness what, what? well it uh, meekness is gentleness uh, right uh-huh. right it's a it's a person who who uh, is soft on the world, right? Someone who isn't harsh and harming others and so on. Mm. Uh, And it's relatively easy to achieve that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you gotta understand the contrast of Jesus's day. Um, The oppressive tyranny of the Roman Empire Mm. uh, was what kind of the message was contrasted against at that time. And uh, the ordinary people who didn't want to tyrannize Mm. are the meek. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And so that message gets lost in this day and age when we don't have such tyranny. Mm. We, we do have some, you know, all, all hierarchies tend towards tyranny. That's the thing. You know, so there's a certain amount of that. But, mm. but we, don't, we don't have the same oppressedness that that message was relevant to. Right. So we can't really interpret it the same way that it was said. This yeah. is something I've been thinking a lot about recently because a lot of people have put authority over
1: things that are older. Uh, Which makes sense in some ways because things that are older have survived for a longer period of time and so maybe there's something to it but the other thing to that is that essentially like you're saying Jesus was in a completely different context the lessons that he was talking about were completely different context than today. And I'm a yoga teacher, and in the yoga world, a lot of people look up to Patanjali and all these other things, mm-hmm. all these other people who have great messages. There's, it's undeniable that they have amazing things to say, but they kind of put these things on a pedestal as opposed to other things that are newer or something like that. Sure. Um, and so I wonder about, because we're living in such a different age, fundamentally different age right now, with all the things that we deal with, the distraction of technology, all these things that are just like mm-hmm. so different from what people in the past have, 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 have done. What do you think about that? or?
0: yeah I think there is a kind of uh, nostalgia uh-huh. in what is old i 'm mm. uh, a bit of a traditionalist myself. I find myself always at odds with that part of myself because i uh, i 'm an innovator, but I also have that kind of love for tradition and that came forth when I was doing martial arts and so mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. the way I, I do chiropractic and mm. and uh, so've I've kind of I feel that pull where you want to stay true to what the master taught but um, you know, part of the hero's journey is learning from the father, that's the master, you know, the, the, the tradition that came before, and taking the best of that and also taking the best of innovation and birthing a new, mm. a new, a new kingdom, right? And that's kind of the archetypal hero story from generation to generation. Uh, so whenever you go backwards in time, you stagnate and die, right? And you can't stay still in time either. Time is ever marching forward. So it takes a certain amount of reverence and learning the lessons of the past, mm. Uh, but also making them relevant to what exists now and some of the lessons of the past are not relevant and you let them go or they Mm -hmm. have to be changed uh, according to their context and so on so you know a a yoga pose for example that was invented and taught for a particular maybe postural insufficiency of the people who lived a thousand years ago Uh may have nothing to do with the postural changes that we have now today Mm -hmm. right and, but it's a tradition now, mm. you know. So it has to be taught the way it was taught, and so on. Mm-hmm. And 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 that can be, it preserves the knowledge and it limits innovation. Uh, so that you have yeah. to kind of strike a balance between those things, and it always upsets the previous generation whenever the new generation does that. And, um, mm. and that's that's part of that's part of the transition between you know, the prince to the king. Mm-hmm. You, know, you have to make that. You eventually have to make the call and, and the figure out what Prince he's, will piss off the king. Basically. Exactly like right, him. right, and then the king eventually becomes irrelevant, becomes a decrepit old man, in the, in, in, mm. right. Um, mm. and right, and that's kind of how those archetypal stories go. Um, yeah. So uh, reverence to the past is important. It's not something that you can just dispense with the way a lot of modern intellectuals do, but it's also not something that you can cling to the way the tra- traditionalists do. Mm. You know, there has to be wisdom in both. This is, what you're saying
1: kind of reminds me a lot about a lot of things that I've discovered the last year, that w- when working with teachers, a lot of times the answer is always, it depends. It depends on you, kind of depends on the circumstances and stuff like that, because you try to get really specific, and, 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 and it's difficult for me to say what I'm, trying to, what I'm thinking right now, But. Um, You're saying that these, there's these—it's oh, it's always a balancing act between these two various kind of uh, contradictory things that you both you have to kind of pay homage to both in order to, to 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 figure out what's going on and stuff like that. So it seems always it's always so difficult because you're always like maybe particularly for the intellectual, the brain and stuff like that because the brain is always trying to grab onto something, make it stable and 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 always get value from it, but reality is constantly changing and you can't kind of tie it down and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't really have a question here, but what do you, th- what do you think about that? Like, uh...
0: Well, yeah, that's the function of the ego. Uh-huh. The function of the ego is to spot things that might be dangerous, which is novelty. Things that uh, we're not aware of in our environment, you know, because you look and see something different, it might be, it might be a dangerous animal, right? Mm. So the, e- the, ego is, uh, the ego is attuned to what is new and different and threatening and its job is to fit it into your framework somewhere so that it can then be ignored. So you ignore almost everything in your environment that's not new, Mm. right? And so that's the pull of tradition is safety, Mm. right? Because if everything is the way it's always been, nothing is new and threatening. Um, However, there's always a part of us that's looking for the novel because Mm. we go out and you know, that's how the tribe expands. You go out and, and explore the un- uncharted territory on the edges of your region. And so there's a push towards what is new and novel and dangerous. And, uh, and whenever you approach what is novel and dangerous uh, on purpose, intentionally, you can overcome it. You know, whenever you're tossed into it, then it becomes a trauma, mm. right? Um, the element of choice, essentially. essentially yeah. yeah mm. So, you know, choosing to do that, that's basically the hero embarking on his journey, right? Um, and so it's it's the ego's job to keep you safe, uh, and that's why it tries to insulate you from what is novel. But there's always a part of us that is inherently curious and wants to investigate the novel, you know, and you get that pull. So those people, and it's kind of, temp- it it's kind of, based in your temperament. You can do cognitive tests with people and really see are they more kind of conservative in their temperament or are they more adventurous in their temperament mm-hmm. and, uh, and and you can start to kind of predict whether they would choose to um, stick with tradition or stick with something more novel and that sort of thing. So, And it's about half and half so I think it's something evolutionary in us that says, well, a certain number of people are going to be maintaining a camp and a certain number of people are going to be exploring and, mm-hmm. and you know, if you have too many of one, the tribe won't survive. If you have too many of the other, the tribe won't survive. So it's a balancing act between, you know, the traditionalists and the adventurers or the uh, uh, like in the conservatives and the liberals and so on. Mm. Um, and I think that's kind of built into us. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems like novelty too.
1: There's this element of, of so in my own life. I've, I've been figuring out for the past couple of years that because of childhood trauma and stuff like that, mm-hmm. Uh, I novelty is something that I am used to because drama was really novel when I was younger. It was like it was like something that totally shook me out of out of uh, I don't know. But so I, I kind of am drawn to these novel situations that sometimes get put put me right back into the traumatic traumatic stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think there's an element of trauma that also does this, where where a traumatized person will reseek those experiences of trauma in order to finally like f- figure this is what I believe is that you figure out. What was that key to the trauma, and then drop the negative belief? I believe that's what. That, that what is the what is the purpose of this uh, uh, drive for people who have been traumatized to unconsciously seek that
0: trauma again? Oh, well, it's familiar. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. So you know, your ego, like I said, has experienced that before, so it puts it into the framework of we know this. Mm. You know, at least this isn't as scary as what we don't know about. Mm-hmm. You know, at least it, mm. you know, at least I know how bad this is. Whereas the other thing could be worse, right you know so that's the the ego kind of trying to keep you safe by keeping you in a certain amount of predictable danger mm-hmm. rather than an uncertain amount of <clears throat> unpredictable danger or or you know a great amount of satisfaction mm-hmm. um, but because that's novel to you, satisfaction, you might not uh, you know sometimes the ego will feel safer in a in a in an unhealthy situation mm-hmm. um, because it just doesn't. The ego always knows what it can lose, but it doesn't necessarily predict what it can gain in a situation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so whenever you can lose your certainty and you can lose, you know, it's like well, at least we know what this situation is like. It can't really see well. You know, look what I'll gain in the future if I change this situation to something else. So you're right about clearing around the clearing out the trauma, clearing out the underlying belief patterns that lead to you re-experiencing that trauma again and again, and. and uh, I have a guy I talk to who kind of helps me unwind those things. I suggest other people, mm. you know, you do the same thing. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, Find someone who can help you unwind mm-hmm. those. Yeah.
0: Right. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and, I'm, and I'm, I, I don't recommend therapy very often because a lot of therapists just have you relive the experience and talk about it. And it's like staying in that point of contrast, mm. which, you know, like I mentioned, you've got to see the point of contrast and then move into what you want. So sometimes it can do more harm than good to just relive those situations again and again. But you find somebody who can help you unwind it and see your way all the way around it until it becomes conscious uh, The underlying belief that says oh, that's the belief I developed with this trauma That's why I keep re-experiencing it. Then you can move on. Mm. You can let it go Um, Well, it's not always that easy, but Mm -hmm. and then then you can move on to kind of more a positive experience of life Mm. This is slightly related,
1: uh, but I want to get into your job as a chiropractor What 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 do you do as a chiropractor? What
0: do people come to you for? Oh, people come to me for reasons that they don't know about for the most part <laughs> uh, yeah. so typically whenever you think of chiropractic most people think of neck pain and be- back aches and headaches and so on so that a form of stress y- essentially yeah yeah or the effects of stress at least mm. Um, mm. and so they come into the office and they ask for that thing or 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 something else or they heard you know my friend got help with this condition or that condition so they'll come in for that um, but that's not really what I do I don't treat people's conditions and I uh, it sounds callous of me to say this, but it's not that. It's uh, I don't really care what the person's condition is, and I care about them as a person. But you know, whether you present to me with a headache or a backache or a neck ache or with diabetes or cancer or or you know you name a condition, if you come into the office with that, my process remains the same. Mm-hmm. That's why I say I don't really care what the condition is. My job is to uh, help you unwind the physical manifestation of traumatic experiences in your nervous system. Um, so anytime you've ever been hurt physically or chemically or emotionally that's stored as a defensive pattern in your nervous system somewhere and those defensive patterns are stored as muscular tension and, and fascia holding and, and you know they create these distortions through the neurospinal system and those distortions interfere with the communication from the brain through the spinal cord to the body and back and and, and so you have these layers and layers of you know traumas throughout your life that you know, have gone in unintegrated and your body defended yourself at that time and it created a pattern of defense that helped you then but is no longer helpful for you now so that's my job is whenever I'm adjusting distortions out of people's spines is uh, I'm not putting a bone back in place the bone bones don't just jump from one place to another place and, and need to be put back it's not like they're stacked like bricks or something uh, what I'm doing is teaching the body to unwind those defensive patterns that you've learned so that you can eventually learn a healthy pattern that is useful for you now. And that's the purpose of the chiropractic adjustment. Uh, Donnie Epstein says it's a destabilizing force. So you've crystallized into the stable pattern of, of defense, and the adjustment destabilizes that so that you can then re put yourself back together, right? Restabilize in a healthier way. And each time we do an adjustment we get a little bit closer to that goal, you know? Mm. Little by little it's like chipping away at a sculpture until eventually the form comes out.
1: And so the, the, the person who has this adjustment on it, do you think there's an element of choice or agency in whether they then go on forward with this new thing or revert back to the same way?
0: Oh yes, yes. Uh, People absolutely choose whether they want to let go or hold on Mm. to those patterns. Mm -hmm. Um, I have kind of a non-physical protocol, an intention set so that I don't attract people who are not ready to heal. So the people who come into my office are kind of at that level of courage where... They're ready to make changes in their life, and that's not necessarily why they came here. They're not conscious of that, Uh, but this really supports the changes they're making in their life as a whole. I don't really attract people into this office who are in the victim mentality or are looking for somebody to save them or heal them or cure them. Uh, Once in a while, somebody like that comes in and they usually don't come back a second time. Mm. You know, the people I attract tend to be the ones who are ready to do the work and and get some healing done. you know treating symptoms is not my game Mm -hmm. so people in here who are just wanting basically me to be an aspirin for them or get them back to doing the negative patterns that got them in crisis in the first place you know uh, like I said I don't tend to attract those people and and when I do they don't tend to stay Mm -hmm. but people absolutely have a choice as to whether or not they can Mm -hmm. whether or not they want to move forward with a healthier pattern or whether or not they want to slip back into their old pattern Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I know from visit to visit when people's spines are changing that's a good sign but if we're if i see the same thing every time they come in i know we're not making progress mm-hmm. and that's not so good hmm.
1: Do you have any interesting anything interesting? Uh, so probably most of my listeners don't know what fascia is or connective tissue. Sure,
0: sure.
1: Uh, do you have any kind of important information that they would like to know about fascia or connective tissue and how that kind of holds? Maybe that's where where does the this tension and the stress or negative patterns get stuck in the body? I mean, it's everywhere, right? But,
0: yeah, it's stuck everywhere. It's mainly stuck in the brain. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Right, and then mm-hmm. the brain then informs all the muscles how to hold their tension and so on, and then that becomes a pattern that's ingrained in the fascia over time and so on. So the fascia is the connective tissue that permeates every other tissue of the body. It's your basic physical framework. So if, if you were to dip the body in a solvent that could dissolve everything except fascia, mm. and you pulled it out, it would look just like your human body except it would just be made of uh, connective tissue. So the shape of your liver would still be there, and the shape of your heart would still be there just with no heart cells in it. It would just be that framework of connecting tissue. And, and so that's the fascia. It's literally everywhere you are in your body, there's fascia. Uh, you know. So as the brain distorts and the spine distorts and you get these defensive patterns, the muscles hold in a certain way for a certain amount of time, the fascia will eventually change as an adaptation and will start to hold that pattern also. Mm. Um, now, I'm not a myofascial therapist. That's not what I do. However, I do have a history in that kind of work. So... When I make an adjustment, I read the direction of the fascia, and it kind of tells me how the body wants to unwind. So that when I make an adjustment, it's in the direction of ease for the body, and the body kind of informs me where to go rather than me imposing my will upon the body. Um, and I teach that in the seminar. Not many chiropractors are really informed about fascia, but because of my unique history, I am. I'm trying to educate chiropractors about it.
1: Hmm. What? So this you've ch- you've chosen a profession that involves touch. And touch seems to be one of the most effective things that I've found in my own experience of limiting factors of trauma, of, of, mm-hmm. of just feeling good. Um, and it's something our society kind of like demeans and kind of says like, oh, that's just, you know, like most of society will say that touch is weird, awkward, especially between strangers. You only have mm-hmm. that with intimate partners and stuff mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. that. Uh, wh- why did you choose this? What is the importance of touch?
0: How did touch, why why touch? Why? Yeah, yeah. That's a really good question. I was. Uh, I was thinking about this um, two weekends ago. I was on a plane to Atlanta to teach, and I sat down to get a shoe shine. I had 20 minutes extra at the airport, so I sat down to have this lady shine my shoes. And You know, she was rubbing my feet and touching my feet and everything, but it was through my shoes. And I, and I started thinking about, you know, there's absolutely no reason for me to sit down in the airport and get my shoes shined. So why did people start doing this? You know, um, It's not because you gotta have shiny shoes you get to your meeting like it's a rush it's it's you know Mm -hmm. and i and i realized that it's it's an excuse for people to experience touch Mm. in a way that's socially acceptable and safe right i was like wow and you know Mm. you have to do it through your shoes i'm like you know this is how men had to be touched it's kind of developed culturally Mm -hmm. because you know the only acceptable way for men to touch each other is to shake hands or to kind of bully and roughhouse and Uh, right Um, and i thought wow you know that's incredible that we if you observe our society, we've kind of built in little sneaky ways to experience touch. And, um, there, there's a, there's a book called The Five Languages of Love, uh-huh. and loving touch is one of the five languages. And of course, that's my primary language, which is why I'm in a touching profession. Um, but if you observe the primates, uh, like chimpanzees and gorillas and and uh, orangutans, they touch each other all the time. They're always kind of snuggled up with each other. They're scratching each other's backs and picking their fur. And it's like um, even even when they're not Coupled, they're doing that with each other. It's a natural part of primate behavior, but mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> human beings have kind of artificially s- uh, separated yeah. ourselves from that behavior. And only some human beings too. A lot of other human beings, like uh, in
1: Thailand, for example, touch is such an important part of the culture. Yes, yes. yes. Uh-huh.
0: And in some cultures, you know, men will walk down the street holding hands yep. and so on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But in the West, at least, yeah. it's 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 become it's kind of taboo to touch people in a way that's uh, not the social norm. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of things like massage and chiropractic and and so forth fulfill multiple needs for people one is the need to be touched Mm. Uh, you know we're social creatures and we're physical creatures and I think it is a physiological need and it's been shown in studies um, that babies who are not touched will not thrive Mm -hmm. you know they'll die Um, if you just leave them in an incubator and you give them all the things that they need but not physical touch they'll die Uh, and so it's definitely built into us as a physical need and And uh, another reason that chiropractic and other kind of touching professions help people heal is, uh, you know, these traumas obviously are stored in a physical way in addition to a mental way and so on. Um, And just making the body aware of the places where it can heal Mm -hmm. is a really important step. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. you can call attention to this spot that says, you know, you've been holding this for a long time. It's okay to let it go Mm -hmm. and, and let the body do its work. You know, so I, mm-hmm. I operate under the principle that the body knows what to do. Mm-hmm. You know, my job is just to remove the interference from that, whatever that process is, mm. and then the body will will do it on its own. You know, so I help the unwinding process. I make an adjustment, and then I let the body take care of it now that it's aware of it. You mm-hmm. know, there's an old saying that says you can't heal what you can't feel. Mm. Right, so the the, the touching professions mm-hmm. kind of bring that feeling back to the body, and that's the issue that most
1: people face, is because in our society, as we've created this artificial <laughs> barrier towards touch. We've uh, created this barrier. Um, Sorry, I lost it. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. we've created the barrier and so this barrier is essentially a disassociation uh because most people are disassociated from their bodies and stuff like that yeah yeah.
0: western people are very disembodied Mm yeah you know so that's the first part of the process in this office getting people back into their bodies Mm -hmm. you know getting people experiencing their bodies Um, and this is why yes i come from the technology world which is a
1: disembodied uh Mm -hmm. world my whole family was in it. it caused a lot of trauma and then now i'm in this now i'm spending most of my time thinking about doing and researching massage and kind of entering this world which most of my family is just like you know why Mm -hmm. Uh, like they don't really get it Mm -hmm. but it is I'm finding out that it is one of the most important things we can do as this society continues to become disembodied through technology, through its use of technology. It's one of the most important things in the world to do, yeah. I think, uh, is, is bring people back into their bodies because if you're not in your body, you're not making good decisions for either yourself or others around you because all of us are in bodies. Not one of us is not in a body. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think,
0: yeah. yeah and uh, that's, yeah, that's a really good observation. And, and you'll see it coming out in, you know, anything that's... Re- repressed kind of comes out in ways you didn't expect. Mm. Carl Jung called that the shadow on a personal level, but you can also see it on a societal level. And so you start seeing the need to be embodied, expressed in our Western culture. More and more these days, you see things like um, core power yoga and uh, various other ways that people can become exercise addicted. And it's like there's, there's a need, an underlying need to express some kind of physicality and it's not being met in a in a healthy and natural way, so it comes out in all sorts of unhealthy ways, like mm. exercise addiction, for example. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, people are not really allowed to experience emotion through the body, so they'll go to the gym and then they'll wreck their body. And to get in, those endorphins. In order to feel yeah. it, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. and then that's a socially acceptable way to do it. And then they kind of mm. then they kind of turn themselves off again when they go back home and so on. Mm. And uh, and especially in Boulder, here you see a lot of exercise addicts. This is mm. this is considered to be like the fittest healthiest most active city in the country i think Uh and and what i see is a pathological city Mm. you know where people are uh, you know people are riding 30 miles 50 miles a day on their bike every single day uh, and it's almost like a punishment for -hmm. themselves you know Mm -hmm. it's like a punishment for not being good enough or something Um, and i really think it's because that's the only way that they can allow themselves to experience their bodies and that's
1: and then, and then they end up getting hip replacements and knee replacements because they have pain in their body from mm-hmm. doing so much stuff. Right, right. Um, and then end up being like, oh, why is this happening to me? This, this, this yeah. makes no sense. Why oh, is yeah. this, uh, I'm exercising. Because that's the other thing is that we're taught that uh, there's clear, clear evidence that exercise is, is very healthy for the body. Mm-hmm. But most of the time that doesn't really come with, like, but that doesn't mean high intensity exercise all the time is the healthy for the body. It's like yeah, it's yeah. really
0: clear that being sedentary is unhealthy. Yeah. so some level of exercise is really good, and human bodies are kind of naturally predisposed to exercise. So you can see it in children's play, and and as you get older, you kind of stop playing because it's not as socially acceptable. But if you know you are allowed to play, you do play when you're older, and, and you know there's a natural physicality to human life. Um, mm. <clears throat> uh, however. We live in, in, a, in a Western society that's kind of... If you're not achieving, you're wasting space, uh-huh, right? Uh-huh. So it's like, well, if I'm going to take the time to play and exercise, I had better be achieving something. I uh-huh. had to be pushing myself and getting better. And, and i got to get a new personal record. And, you know, I, gotta, I rode 30 miles today. I'll ride 40 miles tomorrow. And, mm. and, and it's like, there's not really any way that people can excuse themselves... To have fun and just <clears throat> kind of relax um, mm. and so things like a traditional practice of yoga we're going to get a regular massage they're kind of out on the fringes mm-hmm. where people are like well that's a little weird, but I'll accept that you're doing it, but it's a little weird. You yeah,
1: know. yeah. And and a lot of them will do it only as a kind of like a, as an achievement as well or like as a they, they particularly I find that if so, I think people are more likely to go to a chiropractor rather than a massage because a chiropractor is a doctor, right? Because they're going to Sometimes, somebody who has yeah, yeah. an authority and <coughs> stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so what is I want to ask one more question. Uh, what is the connection between sitting and posture
0: and and health okay <laughs> uh, well we know that sitting for long periods of time is really bad for your heart yeah. uh-huh. you know you know you're much more likely to die of a heart attack if you sit eight hours a day um, poor posture for example forward head posture is a good predictor of early death also so if your head is far forward of your shoulders we should be kind of right balanced above your shoulders uh, it's likelihood that you're going to die or sooner than you otherwise would have mm. what the exact connection is we don't know we just know that those facts kind of coincide and are true um, I will say however that trying to correct posture is a backwards approach you know um, because posture is a result you know posture is not a cause you've got to correct. you've got to kind of get one level up and go for the cause of you know what's causing you to have bad posture well sitting for all day is going to be a, is going to be a contributing factor so maybe try a standing desk or something like that uh, and moving while you're thinking and you know when I'm thinking and reading I usually pace back and forth across the floor or something like that um, mm-hmm. and then uh, and then you got to think about as far as the forward head posture and people always looking down that's not really how human beings are, uh, are designed. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're designed in such a way that the most efficient way for us to stand is our head on top of our spine, kind of aligned with gravity. And the reason we're designed that way is because it keeps our eyes up towards the horizon. So we can always be on the lookout for predators or for prey, uh, you know, for the next little berry that's, you know, we're very, our eyes are very attuned to colors, you know, for, because you know, nutritious things tend to be colorful and, and so on, so, you know, our, our, we're we're set up so that we can always keep our eyes out on the environment and on the horizon. Uh, however, our modern lifestyle keeps us looking down towards the floor. We're either looking down at a book or a computer, a keyboard, or a screen, or a phone, uh, and that's very, very unnatural. It's very mm-hmm. artificial. Um, so some people will give postural exercises and try to counteract that, and that only has a certain, uh, mm-hmm. that only has a certain amount of effect. What you've really got to do is, uh, is uh, reevaluate your lifestyle and figure out as many ways as possible as you can incorporate ways to look up and, and out at the horizon and you know so whether that's having a standing desk so that your monitor is at eye level or or taking breaks throughout the day to get up and walk around and look around and you know spend time looking at the sky it's really got to be a, lifet- a lifestyle factor hmm. more than uh, you know look at bad posture try to correct bad mm-hmm, posture mm-hmm. that's a very mechanistic approach and it's not really aligned with the process of, of life that was that's great um so we've got a couple minutes left what is the name of your book uh, my book is the pro- uh, the pocket guide to prosperity okay it's not published yet it'll be published within the next few months okay. i'm going through the final editing processes now and uh-huh. the traditional publishing process takes a while so <clears throat> it'll be released first as a an ebook and uh-huh. then as a traditional book later down the road and an audiobook uh yeah so it's called uh, the pocket guide to prosperity and um, what is one
1: piece of advice or a, book, a good other book to read or, or something you offer to people who are experiencing a lot of stress um, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, want to be more creative and just kind of people who are stuck and need to get unstuck? Mm-hmm. The,
0: be- the best piece of advice I can give to a person is, is cultivate gratitude. You know, Find gratitude for those points of contrast that are stressing you out. Realize that they're helping point you in the direction you want to go. Find gratitude for the, the, the manifestations of success and abundance you already have. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're grateful, you get more to be grateful for. So gratitude is always kind of repointing you in the right direction.
1: Mm-hmm. And uh, what is this offer? Uh, the chiropractic office we're in?
0: This oh. office is called the Adjustatorium. Okay. Yeah, in Boulder, mm-hmm. Colorado. Mm-hmm. And
1: can people do you talk with people online or can people find what you sure, online? Sure, you can
0: look, at me, look me up on the website. It's theadjustatorium.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can look me up on Instagram, Dr. Ryan the, the Great. And uh, and you can look me up on Facebook as well. Cool. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks, yeah. Stuart. Yeah.